listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. This is episode number 36 of the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. And today we get the opportunity to hear from the very inspiring David Barrow. David shares about his early life growing up in the Central Coast. He speaks about hardships, about wrestling with science and faith, his journey into being politically active and his current role as lead organiser at the Sydney Alliance, where he helps to rally different groups together for the common good. David shares about his journey as a gay Christian, being part of the Uniting Church, his faith in God, and what it looks like to live like Jesus. I hope you really enjoy this conversation with David Barrow. I grew up on the Central Coast and my dad was a doctor there. Mum was a nurse and we lived on this little island called St Hubert's Island. It was kind of like a canal estate and it was very close to to Woiwoi, which is where I kind of was formed. And I think that the juxtaposition between living in this little privileged bubble and then uh, going to scouts and sport and church in Woiwoi really helped me become someone who's very passionate about the disparity between rich and poor. Wow. Mm. Amazing. And do you have any early memories that kind of stand out to you from childhood? Yeah, like we were swamp rats around our like suburb. There were lots of mangroves and we used to go kind of running through mangroves and getting stuck in the mud and kayaking around there. And it was a beautiful, it was like, it was a beautiful paradise to grow up in. And it was really interesting. My dad would take us around on the walk around the island and um, we talk about climate change and we talk about science and we talk about, uh, you know, where the mud skippers come from and, and about toadfish. And so it was this beautiful little world, uh, protected world that we brought, we were brought up in. And so your dad was a doctor and your mom was a nurse. Mm-hmm. What kind of made them be so politically and environmentally aware? I don't think they were political. My, my dad, is kind of like Spock, like he's a really into the kind of facts and curiosity around the world. And that included politics and the economy and uh, things like that. Mum was very passionate about people and there was always room at the table for someone else uh, with an extra plate on, on the table, whether it was the people from next door or the kids in their flannel shirts from youth group or whoever. And that was another, you know, beautiful memory of growing up was about these big dinners with kids and cats and uncles and friends of the family around the dinner table. So my mum and dad were pretty different. I wouldn't say that they were political. They were aware. And we always talked about current affairs at the, at the dinner table. And so you said you went to church. Mm. Do you have like a, a first or just some early memories of either religion or spirituality or God? So dad was an atheist. And we'd come home from church with mum and, you know, he'd ask us questions about our faith. And he wasn't afraid of really testing us. So He'd like grill you after church? Not grill, but, (laughs) you know, ask questions in a very gentle way. Okay. And I think that that made us, made me, very aware of the complexities of faith. I would say it was an investigated faith from the very, well, from as early as I can remember. And as I was growing up into it, becoming a teenager, I actually walked away from the church a number of times. So I was, I was brought up in the church, Sunday school, youth group, the whole community of adults around supporting, you know, my faith formation. But as I was becoming an early teen, I, I, I was, I was, you know, I had it with God and I was walking away from God. And then I'd have these experiences of the Holy Spirit that would draw me back and, that was so profound that my faith wasn't just a cultural faith. It was, it was something deeply personal and spiritual and connected to the divine. Wow. And for people who might not, would, would not say they've experienced the Holy Spirit, can you give us an example or an idea of what that looked like for you? I think in each of the moments, you know, where you are, are deeply reflective, I distinctly remember... Um, and this was the kind of third time that I had uh, I'd been kind of 
pretending I was an atheist. And I say pretending because I kind of was like, I'm done with this. I'm out. I had this massive argument with a pair of parents who homeschooled their kids about spare the rod and spoil the child. And I was, you know, (laughs) I had a big ego and I was like, you know, a young kind of debater. And so anyway, I was so deflated from the experience of kind of clashing with this ideology I'd never come across before, really, because my parents were so curious about others that to, to meet this kind of black and white ideology faith was so confronting. I felt totally defeated. I felt totally broken. And in that brokenness, I felt this mystery of the divine, you know, this connection with God. And and there I was down at a evoker and it was the late afternoon and, you know, it was the golden hour kind of thing when the sun just kind of hits the lagoon there. And I, I remember walking out to the lagoon and, and just had tears down my face and feeling totally broken and saying to God, I give it to you. I'm sick of coming in and out of faith. I, I present to you everything that I am. I reserve the right to be skeptical. I will not give up my mind, but my heart is, you know, I later find out about this guy called John Wesley, who's the Methodist kind of one of founder of Methodism, which is my heart strangely warmed. And it kind of feels like that. And I said, all right, God, I, I, you know, bargaining is all part of it. I said, God, I give it to you, whatever's left. And I'm a joiner. I was very involved in extracurricular activities. So I'll join the church as a way of expressing that, that faith. And so I made a commitment then that um, uh, Jesus Christ was my Lord and Savior, that that meant that I had to be committed to the community of God, and that meant being involved in organized religion. Wow. How old were you? Probably 15. Yeah, 15. Amazing. And what had kind of sent you, you said you were kind of done with God and done with it all. What had sent you in the other direction before that? Well, I think as I became cognizant that the reason that I was different, I'd known I was different from four years old. I didn't understand why I was different until I could label it at 10 when I realized that I was not sexually attracted to to women. I was gay. And um, I knew that at 10. So then the experience of being exposed to very conservative theology about the sexuality issue meant that I did not feel, I felt a discordance between what I'd learned about Jesus and this kind of theology that was playing out and i was not interested in a in a in a pre-modern uh god later on i'd find out i wasn't interested in a postmodern god either but at that stage i was not interested in a judgment i was not interested in a judge and having a relationship with the judge and it was because of people's um showing their love to me you know at youth group camps and that kind of thing and really loving me and and helping me understand God's love, that I was able to overcome that. At the same time, I had doubt, and that doubt was pervasive. I could not reconcile the science and the faith. So when I had these experiences of the Holy Spirit, it, it was, you know, it might have just been neuroscience, but I could not explain why that experience that I was having was so meaningful, deeply meaningful for me. And... Part of the mystery of faith is is trusting in that. And, you know, you have questions about, will I go to heaven? Does God exist? Uh, if God exists, is Jesus the way? You know, you have all those questions. And part of faith is suspending that and, and living in faith. Amazing. And then, so to the school side of your life, mm. how did you find school socially, academically? School was complicated for me. The paradise that I was um, born in, that world of being loved by two parents and living in this beautiful place of beaches and bushwalks and mangroves and plenty, abundance, was pierced by uh, a tragedy in our family's early life. My brother uh, drowned in a pool. He was two years old. And I was eight, and I found him at the bottom of the pool. And I then changed schools and went to a new school. And so I would watch the boys play their games, violent games, bullying kind of each other, and I just didn't understand. 
I could not understand that if you had this limited time on the planet, why would you waste it? Wow. With violence or, or, or mucking around. And so I kind of had this very adult understanding of things like that. But yet I was a child trying to understand that in a child's mind. So I wasn't very popular and I liked the library and I made friends with my teachers seeking a kind of a depth um, that I wasn't able to get because I was experiencing trauma and survivor's guilt. Um, until I was about 25, you know, this idea that I had to juice every single day. I'd go to the bathroom and, and I'd look in the mirror and I'd imagine an hourglass above my head. The idea that I had a limited amount of time on this planet and I had to use every single day and my faith helped me with that. But so, so I applied that to school and so I was involved in everything and that made me a bit of an extracurricular nerd. And, but I was also very feminine and I was also very scrawny and I was also very sensitive and I would come home and bore my eyes out because I didn't understand why, why I was being called all these names. So I loved school because it taught me how to think in a hundred different ways and how to survive in the playground. And that helped me later when, you know, thinking about the political realm, it was hard. And then as I grew and as I matured, as I I kind of came into my own skin and then later came out of the closet and became my full self, this experience of wholeness, the community that I had at the school was beautiful and powerful too. Um, The idea that you're tossed together with these individuals, random individuals, and you have to love them as a Christian with all of their faults and warts and wrinkles. And that tests you and that experience of the village. Really, I think if I reflect on it at my later life, it really influenced how I think about our civic understanding of you know society and how we understand how we relate to people that we do disagree with and who are different from us. Yeah. So that was my experience of school, or some of it anyway. And did you know what you wanted to do when you grew up as a kid? I was very involved in the arts and at school. I loved the school production. And I thought that I wanted to go and change the world through the arts. And I wanted to do theatre at uni, but I thought that's not really... How many people do you talk to at a theatre? You know, a bunch of middle-class people. I want to go change the world. And so I thought I'd go and be a film director. And that's where we met at uh, UTS, doing media arts and production. But at uni... I really got a reality check that it was a very long and complicated route to change the world through the arts. It was very subtle. It took a lot of time. I worked as an usher at at the theatre, at Sydney Theatre, and uh, there was this amazingly powerful play on that was so emotionally powerful. I can't even remember what it was about, but I knew that it was something that was, it was edgy and it was political. And I thought, wow, you could not walk out of this and not be affected. But I distinctly remember this cavalcade of pearls and folks who lovely folks from the Eastern suburbs gushing about how, wasn't it wonderful how the actors learnt their lines and wasn't the set beautiful. And that was as deep as that experience went for them. And I thought, oh, bugger, I've made a mistake here about what I want to do. Because if I'm going to depend on middle-class people to make change, I don't know if that's going to work. So when I got to uni, I experienced this uh, this thing called organising, community organising or student organising and activism. It was like really powerful for me. And it really resonated with my faith and, and what I'd learnt growing up. Wow. And is... Is that where you sort of became involved with this Sydney Alliance? That came later. I mean, when I when I got to uni, I had been so involved in student life at school that I actually just wanted to get my degree and get out. Except that I had these long gaps between my 9am classes and my 4pm classes. And I lived on the Central Coast, so I was commuting. So I kind of just kind of lurked around the campus being like, okay, well, who am I going to meet? I met these people from the Student Association who told me about changes to higher education that were going to make it harder for poor kids to get into university and easier for rich kids to get into university. Their parents would pay and they wouldn't need to get the same UAI into score, you know, to get into uni. I was outraged because growing up on the Central Coast, you cannot not see how the economy will take people in different directions. The opportunities that my friends at the private school that I went to got were huge. There was abundance. And my friends from Scouts or from, you know, from music or from, you know, from church who went to state high schools didn't get those opportunities. 
And that was before they even got to university. So anything that was going to make it harder for my smart friends from Scouts, who had all dropped out of school really in year 11 and year 12, who now later have gone in eight years later to mature age you know, entry. Anything that was going to make it harder for people like that to get into uni, I was opposed to. So I was like, sign me up. I'm involved. Get me. And, and, and my first rally was... 2,000 students had walked down George Street from Sydney Uni and here we were, this little group of UTS students out the front of the big brown tower. I got up and shared my story on this little podium and, and told it. And then suddenly this Trotskyite yelled out, student power, storm the tower. And, you know, big blonde dreadlocks of that person. And suddenly everyone storms in through the, the big glass doors to try and occupy the chancellery. And there was uh, pepper spray going everywhere and people were crying because of the pepper spray. And the Channel 9 had the video cameras out and it was absolute chaos and in that moment I was like oh my gosh this is awesome I am having so much fun and it was very Les Miserables you know young young men and women throwing themselves at the at the the barricades only to be shot it was completely the wrong way of going about it but to be connected with a group of people who actually cared who wanted to change the world I mean that beat kind of the apathetic you know, ways of the world that I'd experienced. I mean, this was the time of the Tampa crisis of children overboard where the prime minister had lied to the people about that, about the beginning of the war in Iraq, that huge rally at Hyde Park with hundreds of thousands of people. It was amazing. And I remember distinctly being one of the only people from my school to go to that rally or that I knew of, you know, that people just were not interested in that kind of thing. And so to get to uni and meet this gang of people, you know, Muslim people and environmentalists and brown people, because I'd grown up in the center because it was pretty white, you know, it was like, whoa, this whole, the world opened up. Mm. The world opened up and it was, it was very romantic and, and, and it was there that I learned about the tension between love and power. Yeah. Can you talk about that a bit? I'd been away from the church for a number of years. Okay. Because I I was involved in the youth group and I was kind of involved in leading up in the front at this, this conservative church. And things didn't go well when I came out of the closet. Right. And I could not continue to worship there. And it was heart-wrenching. This was the community that had, one of the communities that had brought me up and as I developed and formed had tended to me. And when I was confirmed by, you know, the the bishop, um, the Anglican bishop in that church, it was a profound experience of majesty. You asked before the experience of the Holy Spirit, what does it feel like? Well, this is an amazing experience of connection. It was 16 years old to the community around me. And then at 16 and a half, I could not continue to to worship there because of, the incompatibility of that theology with my very nature at its core. And so I I left. And I visited different churches and I saw Catholic folks and I saw Pentecostal folks and Uniting folks and they were all different experiences. But I felt alone, a strong faith, but no community to share it in. It was a very heartbreaking time for me. And in my second year at uni, I kind of stumbled across a Bible study run by the Uniting Church. I was actually on my way to a lecture. I had my red leaflets and my red shirt, and I was off to do what we call a lecture bash, which is where you go and speak to people about the upcoming rally or the upcoming event that you want people to come and participate in. And it's in the, the basement of UTS, and we're walking along past the seminar room, and um, there's this guy with silver hair, and he kind of welcomes me, he says, come in, it's a Uniting Church. I thought, okay. I remember seeing them at the rally against the war in Iraq, and I thought, okay, I know they're kind of involved in that kind of thing, and I know that they kind of have more supportive, or some of them are more supportive of gay and lesbian folks, so all right, well, let's let's check it out. And I came in, and I didn't let go of my leaflets at first, and I sat kind of in the back. There wasn't many people. It was the Uniting Church. It was about 10 people, and <laughs> we're doing the Book of Mark. And this idea that Jesus walks out of the bush round the Sea of Galilee up to the disciples who are at work and he says to them, drop your nets and follow me immediately. It was like a hand came out and slapped me around the face and said, wake up. 
This is your place. And I put down my leaflets and I stuck around on the Bible study. And I discovered there the first time in my life that my heart that loved humans and loved community, my head that was skeptical as hell because of my upbringing in science, and my hands, the idea of being an activist, you know, going out and actually living out God's plan for humanity, you know, making on earth as it is in heaven, actually living that out, not just pretending that it's like a terminal, you know, where we're in the waiting room for heaven uh, and that, you know, it's just about your intellectual belief, you know, in Jesus and that will save you by itself. You know, it was more than that. It was saying if you make that commitment to, to Jesus as a personal commitment to God, then you have to live out as Jesus lived. You know, so it was that, you know, I was getting adult theology. I, I'd be absolutely unafraid to say that the theology that I got was for kindies. You know, it did not answer my deep questions. And suddenly I was hearing about hermeneutics and ecclesiology and politics and economics and history and the divine all wrapped up into a Bible study. This was like seminary level stuff. And finally my, my mind was getting the meat it needed. And a community of people that if my ego got too big, they'd very quickly bring me back down to earth. But a community <laughs> of people that loved me as a whole person, as a gay person, as an activist, and as a Christian brother. And that was incredibly powerful. And um, that was you know, 12, 13 years ago. And I started going to a church there. And I'm now the, an elder in a church. And I've committed to that community in that place at Leichhardt Uniting. And it has become the most profound rock of my life and existence. Wow, amazing. So you joined that church community and you also joined a political party? Well, I flirted with the Labour Party. Um, Really, I learned pretty quickly not to believe in groups of humans. So I ended up the president of the National Union of Students. So I was very involved in student <laughs> activism. And I, and I went all around the country. And I think I'd probably been the first Christian, out Christian, in the student movement, in the president position for about 20 years. And my faith fundamentally shifted how I thought about the campaigns that we were running. For example, I was very committed to the, to the issue of international students and them being exploited. And I think that was because I saw the Indian and Chinese men and women in my classes at UTS as my brother and my sister, not as a category of um, student. I think that the Marxist approach or the neoconservative approach in politics makes you think of people as transactional objects that are part of this economy. As, like, as They're all part of a cogs and a big machine rather than what we learn as Christians, that they're our brother and we're going to love them. And so when Ninton Garg was killed, um, when someone threw a Molotov cocktail through his front window in Footscray in 2009, I reflected, what is my response to this? And up until that point, you know, local students had been really concerned about domestic student issues. That There'd been international student issues kind of on the radar, but not like in that year. And a few days after he died in hospital from his wounds, there were 5,000 Indian students on the street in Melbourne. And we organised an action a week later that was covered by um, the, the National News of India, probably NUS, the National Union of Students, had never been covered by more in more screens, by heard by more people than that moment when we were beamed across India, where we had Indian students and Australian students marching arm in arm up George Street to say no to exploitation in the housing market, no to exploitation um, in these dodgy English language colleges, no to racism against Indian students. And we fundamentally shifted the culture of seeing international students as cash cows in this country. And it was there that I saw Hindu temples, Christian churches, universities, student unions, and trade unions work together to change the laws, to fundamentally shift the way in which international students were treated in this country in a whole variety of different ways. And that power came from outside the Labour Party. So when I finished up in the, as the president of the National Union of Students, I had a choice. Do I go on and become a hack in the Labour Party, you know, a staffer, or do I do this other thing I'd heard about, the Sydney Alliance, which was bringing faith communities, community groups, unions together to take action on issues of the common good, like affordable housing, refugees, public transport, affordable power, these 
things that weren't the abstract issues, but were you know, concrete everyday issues, but getting people who are very, very different to work together and to go back into politics and say, we demand a higher standard from our political leaders, from our elected leaders. And that was very enticing. Because if I was to go and work for the Labour Party or for the Greens or for any kind of machine party, I don't think I could reconcile it with my faith. And here was a type of organising that put people first, put people. You start in community organising by one-on-one having a relational meeting with someone who's very different from you, understanding them as a human, subject to subject, not subject to object, not mobilising another person for your cause, but deeply listening to what is this person's self-interest, their understanding of who they are and where they are, and then working together to change the city, politics, to be interested in the welfare of the city. And to see people of faith and moderation that have walked away from politics because it's, 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 it's you know, there's blackmail, there's bribery, there's developers, there's media, there's, it's, a, it's a race to the bottom. We see the politicians acting like children. But actually, just, and we've walked away from that. But to see people of faith walk back and say, no, I am a Christian. And I not only believe in the crucified Jesus and the risen Jesus, but the Jesus who lived and said, peace be on earth and uh, blessed are the meek and brought this revolutionary understanding to ancient Judea and was executed on the town dump for it. To take that understanding of what costly discipleship that means and not just apply it to our personal life, but to apply it to our public life, to take that faith into public and say, By God, we are here and we demand better of you. We are not going to abscond from our responsibility to our brothers and sisters who live in our city. And that is a very powerful idea for me. I started organising at the Sydney Alliance seven years ago and it is my, I feel like it is my ministry. Great. Before we talk more about that, I'm interested to hear if you think that there is a place for Christians and, and religious people in party politics absolutely of course i mean of course there is there's we have to have people of faith involved in every party uh involved in every part of of public life civic life in the judiciary in the media now i would probably disagree with a lot of people in the you know the australian christian lobby about different issues around sexuality issues i'm sure i mean i have Big differences with the very conservative Catholic people that I love and work with every day. But there is lots that we have in common. And for Christians to discover their voice as, rediscover their voice as part of the public sphere, we have so much to bring to public life. We are sitting in a moment where where liberalism, this idea that rationality will solve all of our problems, whether it's on the right or the left, whether it's, you know, Spock, this idea that science and rationality will solve all our problems, or whether it's the neoconservatives, the economy will solve all our problems. And that has failed us. And now we have Trump who has come to power on this wave of human feeling and anger, righteous anger even. If we as Christians do not intervene in this public space and say, what does it mean to love our brother and sister? What does it mean to to love our neighbor? And what does that mean in public life? If we do not do that in every single part of our society, well, we're in trouble. I believe that many of the foundations of a good society, of a secular society, actually, of a pluralist society, uh, many of those foundations are richly understood and richly embodied by Christian people. And I believe that we need to have a pluralist society, not necessarily a secular one. We never, in our organisation, the Sydney Alliance, we never ask people to leave their faith at the door. Mm. And whether you're on the right or the left, you are told that your faith is not important to public life. But it is, because the faith that you have in Jesus has formed you and has made you who you are the same way that a Jewish person or a Hindu person or a secular atheist has been formed. Your question is, should people be involved in politics that they have faith? Yes, and should but they be proud of their faith in public life? Absolutely, yes. 
You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast, episode number 36, with David Barrow. You can listen to other episodes in the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast on iTunes or on SoundCloud, like my conversation with Sister Mary Rachel Capitz. I was actually praying about a guy that I was dating and thinking, oh, is this the guy you want me to marry? I mean, if not, I really need, we need to end it, but is this the man? I heard in the quiet of my heart, um, the Lord make what I, what I say is a proposal that he said, I, have, I heard him say in the silence of my heart, I have made your heart for me and no other man. And at that moment is when I knew he was calling me to be what we say his spouse, to be a bride of Christ and to follow him in this really unique way. That was an excerpt from my conversation with Sister Mary Rachel Capitz from episode three. You can listen to the full episode on SoundCloud or on iTunes. And now back to this episode with David Barrow. And so for your role in which you find yourself lead organizer at the Sydney Alliance, can you tell us a bit about like what day-to-day looks like? And I'm interested if you have any key stories or memories that really stick with you. The community organizer is employed by a coalition in this case, 40 organisations in Sydney, the Archdiocese of Sydney, the Catholic one, the Baptist Church, the Uniting Church, Muslim groups, Jewish groups, trade unions, community groups, charities, very diverse group of civil society. And they have formed a coalition to change the city for the better on issues that they can all agree on, not issues that they can't disagree on, but issues they can agree on. And so they employ an organiser to help them do that. And the organiser is like a coach and a mentor and an agitator. I mean, community organisers go into a community and they develop leaders and they agitate them to be involved in public life. And what that looks like is one-on-one face-to-face meetings helping people reflect on their story, sharing, as I've shared today, their own experiences, their own stories about what makes them tick, and encouraging people to take that first step with other people that are different, that they have been taught by shock jocks and by tabloid media and by their parents sometimes and by their community sometimes to hate, to overcome that by meeting with others that share their common concern, day-to-day things like affordable housing or childcare, for example. And to do that, to recognize that the other person is human, to really deeply understand that they are your brother and sister, even if they look different or if they sound different or if they're from a different race. And then to say together, to go into public life and say, it is not just a zero-sum game for you in politics. You're not doing this by yourself. Politics is the welfare of the city. And, you know, we go back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29.7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. If you could take a a line out of the Bible and really apply it to the work we do in the Alliance, that would be it. Politics is too important to leave to politicians. And so we we organize around the issues. We find out what does the the issue mean for people deeply. We get them involved. We also find out what's the best solution. We talk to experts and academics and politicians. And then we organize huge meetings with hundreds or thousands of people. And we ask the politicians to front up, face the people, make commitments around changing it and to make change together. It's a very different understanding of politics and democracy than we have where you just leave it up to politicians to, 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 to be your saviour, whether you're a liberal or labour or whatever. Or very different also from GetUp, which asks you just to click on an email. That's not what an organiser asks you. An organiser asks you to meet your neighbours, meet uh, people who share your concern, and then to take that to, to the people who have the power to shift it. And so this tension between power and love is power is the ability to act. And love is this, you know, this ideal that we have from our faith. And if we live in the world of love, then we're very quickly going to get burnt by politics and we're going to be the Care Bear rug. You know, if we think that the world is Care Bears and Pippi Longstocking and, you know, Easter Bunny, we're not going to last very long. But if we only live in the world of power, the Frank Underwood world of House of Cards and Game of Thrones, if we only live in that world, then we are becoming the cynical kind of hacks that does not represent God's kingdom. And so we live in that in-between space where we we live in the world as it is, the world of power and politics and the dirt and mud of everyday life. But we strive for the world as it should be. We strive for God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amazing. And then are there any examples that stand out to you, even people you've met or victories you guys have had? 
I think one of the most powerful lessons I learned was that good people in politics, politicians, cannot do it alone. And a good example is Mike Baird, who went out on a limb inside his own party about refugees. Now, we had done some work on wanting to get concession cards for asylum seekers. We'd worked with the Asylum Seeker Interagency, with Settlement Service International, all these different groups. And what we did is we went to communities on the North Shore in Sutherland Shire, Western suburbs, not your typical inner Westie types, and we, we had asylum seekers share their story. And it, and it was these powerful human moments. People were so moved by the, the human experience um, that, they were, that they felt compelled to act. We invited them to act and to send their Opal cards and a letter to their Liberal Party leaders and the Liberal Party members of Parliament saying, we think you should extend the concession card to the 30,000 asylum seekers that are in New South Wales, or eight, somewhere between eight and 30,000, depending on where. And we did our case, we did our work, we, we, went, we went and made sure that it was fiscally viable. We got a group of people from Selman Service International to do the business case and actually found that by reducing the amount that asylum seekers had to pay, you actually could make money. Raquel could make money. So we knew that when we fronted up to Gladys Berejiklian, the treasurer, we could say, yes, this makes money. But we knew it was also going to be a big shift for her. So we had to have people from their own communities sending letters of support, not traditional Labour people, but people who were swing voters, people who were liberal communities, you know, like Willoughby Uniting Church and the Anglican Church from, you know, Taramara and different, different groups like that. And eventually we built up this understanding that they could act and they would be supported by their communities. And, you know, the crowning achievements was taking the Armenian bishop to go and meet with Gladys Berejiklian, who's Armenian and was from his church where he was the bishop, you know, and to have him say to her in that meeting, Gladys, we are twice refugees, first from the USSR and then from Syria now. You know what it means to be a refugee. We're asking you to take action. She was transport minister at that time and then became treasurer. To take action and to give these asylum seekers concession cards. Well, three months after the election, we had the announcement that 8,000 asylum seekers would get access to the concession card. And it was the first time that a conservative government anywhere in Australia since Tampa crisis in 2001 had ever acted in favour of asylum seekers by our memory. And there was good people in government but they couldn't have done it by themselves. And there were good people in the asylum seeker interagency, but they couldn't have done it by themselves. It took a combined approach, a powerful approach of people across Sydney of very different kinds and walks of life to get that across the line. And that was the very first. And then after that, we got access to TAFE for asylum seekers. And now we're looking about what's our next thing to do. So we're, we're building that momentum. That's just one of many, many wins that we've had in the, in the Sydney Alliance. So good. That's awesome. And so if people want to get involved listening, like what could they do? Well, here's my plug, www.sydneyalliance.org.au. We're on Facebook. Uh, you can look us up there. And I would ask any Christian who's in the Sydney metropolitan, you know, whether you're from Cowan to Katoomba to Engadine, any part of the city, get involved because it is an experience that will build your faith, a new experience of acting in public. There is nothing like it. Sharing your faith to people who are different from you, don't have a faith, to politicians or academics, that you're here because of your faith, that is a powerful experience. And I have seen people come back to God. Christians who have been a long time out of the game <laughs> come back to their relationship with God, with church, with Jesus through this work. Now, that's not why I do it uh, when I'm at work, but as a Christian who believes in evangelism and believes in sharing the good news, it's a very powerful part of my, my mission. Now, Sydney Alliance is not a Christian organization. It is a pluralist organization, but that is a very um, encouraging thing to see. So if you take the step to be involved in public life with the Sydney Alliance, you will go on a journey of experiencing what it is like to be a Christian in public working with people who are very different from you and you won't regret it so good and then in your personal life you've got your long-term partner curtis mm -hmm. are you able to share with us a little bit about being a gay christian both in terms of just your personal journey and and theologically what you believe let's start with first principles i knew from the very beginning of my life as soon as i could remember that i was gay 
Different at first when I could label it, I knew I was gay. I've never loved or been sexually attracted to a woman in my life. Two, I was asked to be celibate in my childhood church. And I had seen what celibacy, when you are not, if you are not called to celibacy and they are asking you to be celibate, think about what kind of fruit that that brings. It is got to be a call that you are called to. I know that I am loved by God and that I am committed to being a Christian for the rest of my days. If God is love, and love is the greatest expression of of God that we have, then how can something so deeply profound as the love that I share with my partner Curtis be ungodly? Why are there more XX-gays than there are X-gays? The fruit of that bush, the ex-gay ministry, is not good fruit. Suicide, depression, self-harm, reverting back to, you know, gay lifestyle is pretty, pretty usual from that ex-gay stuff. So I have great respect for people who are called to celibacy, but there is a difference between being called to celibacy and asking someone to be celibate. And I I can't reconcile those. I can't reconcile that. A lot of people I've come across have never been able to imagine what a gay Christian life could look like. Monogamous, loving, committed. My partner and I have been elders in our church for a long time. We are... We're a small community, so it's easy to be a pillar. We're a pillar of the community. People say that to us. We are mentoring young people on how to live a Christian life. We keep people accountable. All the things that you would expect of a Christian couple, we try and live out as best we can as sinners, you know, as broken people. Number three. Now, if you want to look and, and work out for yourself what you think, go and have a look at the Reformation Project. Get a different perspective on your theology. The thing about the gay and lesbian issue is that it fundamentally challenges Christians because it asks you how you read the Bible. And do you read the Bible uh, as a black and white text? Or do you read it within the context within, within which it was written? And I believe that you have to read it within the context within which it was written. That doesn't take away from its divine personal salvation, but that I believe that is the way that you must. And that's pretty clear from the way I was brought up. Our eyes are not inerrant. The word may be inerrant, but our perception of the word is not inerrant. So how do we possibly understand the Bible? We have to read the Bible through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And when I read the Bible in community, in church, or with my, my peers and, and very learned colleagues who are much more learned than me, and look through the, 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 the prism of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I can't see, I, I, can, I can't see how um, the kind of theologies that are going around about gay people in the church that are very um, anti, I don't see how that can line up. That's not a free pass for gay folks. I mean, look, the good news is not good news for Christians because it's so bloody hard to keep it up, right? Like that's why, you know, the two, you know, I often say that Jesus said, love God, you know, as your one and only God and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is not good news for Christians because it's hard work. So, so for the gay Christian, it's hard work. You have to face your own community and all of the vices, if you like, to use a Puritan term, that that brings, and minister to that community, and be held to the same account that a straight couple is held to. But the the, the, the fourth, or maybe I'm up to the fifth, I don't know, I can't keep count, is that when I met Curtis, my partner, I knew he was the one. A love so deep and profound that when I heard ministers talking about their relationships with their wives or other Christian couples, I thought, wow, this could be like that. That we could love each other with God as part of that union, as part of that relationship, that we could live a Christian life together 
and we're both elders in the church and we're really committed to the church and to living out a Christian life. The sixth thing or the fifth thing I'll say, the fifth or sixth thing I'll say, <laughs> is that you know, as a gay Christian, you are in the margins, you are an outsider because uh, Christians don't really get you and gay people don't really get you. And that is a gift and it can be a ministry to both sides. And if I think about my life as an outsider, I've always felt like an outsider at the edge of the village. And when I read the New Testament and I understand itinerant preachers, like I see a lot of that and I, and I, you know, I'm a broken, sinful person, but if I have a ministry, it is to, to be the outsider that can come to a community and share what I can of my journey um, with Christ. As an organizer, as a gay Christian, as uh, someone involved in politics, whether that village is my school or my church or my scout troop or Sydney civil society or politics. And in many ways, I believe that is my vocation and my deep ministry. Thank you for sharing that. And you've spoken to this a little bit already, but I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the Uniting Church and actually haven't interviewed anyone from the Uniting Church yet. So why you really feel like that's the denomination for you? Everyone in Christianity is ready to give a kick to the Uniting Church. (laughs) It's, you know, it's an aging denomination. And yet I am in a church that is just growing with young people. Mm. I mean, I'll be honest with you. We are the last stop for a lot of people. Our church, Leichhardt Uniting, is, has a very clear mission uh, for young adults and students, but also other people. Our church is full of feminists and engineers and scientists and people with PhDs and gay folks and lesbian folks and bisexual folks and straight folks who care about their gay and lesbian friends and people who want to see women in, in the collar, you know, women in leading. Uh, people can go and read The Basis of Union, but... For me, the Uniting Church is that place where where Scripture is taken seriously, where evangelism is taken seriously, where living out God's world in the community is taken seriously, where taking that into political life is taken seriously, and where um, you can grow, where I can grow, and it, and for me, it is that journey. And for people who are burnt by the church, for people who need to come as you are that's how we want you to over him for people who have their heart strangely warmed as as wesley would say for people who feel like the church should be out in the world that it's not just about the holy huddle but that we've got to take our faith out of the front doors and into the world not just in individual personal but political and community and all of those things then the uniting church is that place now it's a democratic church so there's lots of variation within that church and that's part of what i love too Uh, and i'm part of the synod and we're part of debates and 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 we are this idea that the priesthood of all believers that all believers are called to minister that all believers are called to to be the church that it is uh, a flat church and a flat structure. That, for me, is something important too. And that there are many parts of the church that will accept and affirm gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people. That when I walk into that church, I am affirmed in in a fundamental part of who I am. Great. That's my pitch for the Uniting Church. (laughs) But we're just a bunch of flawed sinners like everyone else, but we're trying and we're on a journey. Yeah. And then looking at your journey overall, be it in church or relationship or work or whatever, would there be any particular moment or season that you'd say has been your toughest? I've shared about my tough times. The hardest times in my life were before I made a commitment to Jesus. Feeling alone feeling alone and unworthy to be on this planet. Feeling the guilt of surviving. Life wasn't, you know, a bed of roses when I made that commitment to God. But it sure helped. <laughs> and, uh, and since then, my life has become an abundant place. And my faith is my rock. 
and is the rock for my relationship with my partner, Curtis. And together with my church, we just do the best we can in the world that we have. And on the other side of that, would there be like anything you'd call out as your happiest or maybe your proudest moment? I've got a bit of a critique of happiness. Our whole society is about short-term gratification. We've become obsessed with the newest thing that will make us happy. I'm more interested in contentment. Happiness seems to go up, and for every up there is a down. It's kind of like, seems to be a bit of a sugar high anyway, the way I understand it. And what I seek is contentment. And for most of my life, I could not be content because I would go to the mirror and see sand running through the hourglass. My 25th birthday, I took a moment to take stock of the harvest and of all the things I had done. And I realized that it, I had lived my life. If I died tomorrow, I'd be happy because I'd lived every day to its fullest. That I made it to 25 and that if I was going to make it to 45 or 55, then it's a marathon, not a sprint. And when I'm with my partner, Curtis, I am content. And when we have won a victory that will make people's lives better in this city, and we've done it with everyday people, I feel content. Not for very long. That's the nature of you know, the justice stuff you get angry by stuff and you gotta you know you keep working and when i go to church on a sunday night and i return to that place of contemplation and prayer i am content and anger is very important to the work that we do without anger we have apathy anger comes from grief of love withdrawn or love denied and um i don't mean rage i mean anger And it's like power and love, love and anger kind of sit in tension, as does contentment and and anger. And I think that striving for that love, striving for that contentment, helps turn that anger from a bonfire that turns into a bushfire that destroys things, into a pilot light, into a little engine. That means that every day I can get up and do the work that I do makes me so passionate about making the world a better place. Mm. And on that, like, what are you kind of hoping to see politically in Australia? Well, I won't give any grand visions <laughs> because who, you know, who, who can say, but, but how about this? What if the church really was the light on the hill? What if the church was not just the example on refugees or Indigenous issues or penalty rates or affordable housing or transport or all these issues? What if the church actually had the power to make the intervention into our society to really reflect God's kingdom? That's never going to happen because we're in a broken world, but hey, we can strive. So I think rather than make a grand vision for what politics in Australia could look like, what if the first step was what if every denomination of Christian people could work together and live out their faith in public to take on the structural sin uh, that we see in our country? That'd be that'd be a beautiful thing. Yeah. And then in your journey, is there a particular passage from the Bible or even a figure from the Bible that has been particularly significant for you? There are so many figures. I mean, I really, really resonate with Paul because of the tension between love and power. I mean, he went to the center of the Roman Empire and he he made Christianity the global religion. I mean, he was a political thinker. I resonate with uh, David, King David, and being a sinner and having desires and being a broken figure. 
I resonate with Joseph, who interprets dreams as the commensurate outsider to the Pharaoh's court, who we forget goes on to to gather all the grain in Egypt and and actually sells his own people into slavery so that when Moses comes around, he leads them out of slavery. It was a Hebrew. It was a Hebrew, you know, Joseph, the Technicolor Dreamcoat guy, who sells his own people into slavery for the Pharaoh. And it's, it's a drama. You know, the drama of Exodus really is a very powerful thing for me right now. Walter Brueggemann writes a book called Journey to the Common Good, where he says, the nightmare of the tyrant becomes state policy. The nightmare of Pharaoh, the nightmare of the man who had everything, was scarcity. And so he takes this outsider, Joseph, and he gets him to be his his chief bureaucrat that gathers all the wheat of Egypt. And they gather it during the seven years of plenty. And then in the seven years of famine, the Hebrews come to them. And in the first year, they have nothing. And so Joseph collects their money. In the second year, they have no money. And so he collects their means of production, their machines, their ox, their donkeys, their horses, their cattle, their sheep and their goats. And in their third year, they have nothing else to give. And so Joseph says, sell yourselves to, to Pharaoh. And he buys the people, God's people. He buys the Jews. He buys the ancient Israelites, the Hebrews. And the next Pharaoh comes along and the, this Pharaoh's nightmare is of all these Hebrews that are the slaves that keep having kids, having all these kids and growing in multitudes. And his nightmare is that they will overpower the few of Egypt who are lording it over the Hebrews. And so his state policy is that every first son of every Hebrew family will be killed. And so Moses' mother takes Moses, takes him and puts him in a basket and sends him down the river. And he ends up in the palace. And he ends up in the palace watching the slavery of his people. And he goes out into the bush, goes out to the mountain, and he sees the burning bush. And he says, who me? Yes, you. You're a stammerer. You stutter. You're a murderer. But I want you. He, after lots of things happen, uh, he, he leads the people out of Egypt. And it's the nightmare of the Pharaoh, of the state of power, versus the abundant dream of the people of God. And they go into the desert. And the first thing that happens is they start complaining and they want to go back to their chains. And in the desert, God provides abundance for them, the manna from heaven. And the thing that I love about that story is that unlike Pharaoh storing the grain in big granaries and then using it to buy the slaves, you cannot hoard the manna that falls from heaven. Every day it will dissolve and turn to dust. You have to eat it every day and God will provide it, that abundance. That radical generosity, that radical abundance is the intervention that inspires me, the intervention that we need into this world. And when people say that the Bible or Jesus or Christianity shouldn't be political, I say, read the Old Testament. (laughs) It's right there, baby. So that's really resonating with me. I see myself both <laughs> I see myself both in the complaining Jews, <laughs> in the Pharaoh, in Joseph who sells out his own people. Mm-hmm. These stories help us to understand how we should act and give us lessons for our life. Yeah, amazing. And then I like what your Facebook page says. Uh, I'll quote you. <laughs> it says, I live publicly for the common good and privately for the good life, follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Are you able to sum up for us what is at the core of what you believe? I believe in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. I believe that for me and for most Christians, that means taking your faith into public life, not just keeping it as something private and hidden and under a bushel and in the home 
but it's something that you take into your workplace and your politics and into the civic square. I also believe that, and this is the other part of that phrase, privately for a good life, that Christians have got a really bad rap for being bloody boring. <laughs> the thing I love about Jesus is he's always on his way at or on or leaving a party, a meal. He's a community guy. He loves a good party, and so do I. And I live out my community life in, in all through my in every different way of my life, but I love to have a good party and I love to to create that abundance and generosity and have a great time in my private life. And it's those two, my public and private, that um, kind of uh, intention but also in communion about how I live my life. Yeah, wow. And then to finish on, like for your future, what are you hoping? I would like to lay on my deathbed and know that I'd made a difference. That I had not wasted this precious gift of a life, of time on this planet. And that I had spent my time living out God's love as best I can, as much as a sinner can do with their time on the planet. Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.